Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. The world order has changed and no one is facing up to it. We are not going back to February 21, 2022. We are now in a different world and we need to get on with it. And that includes thinking carefully about what it would mean if Russia won in Ukraine. Hello and welcome back to episode two of Behind the Lines, the new geopolitics podcast with me, Arthur Snell. I'm a former diplomat who now works as a consultant, writer and podcaster. I'm active in international affairs from Yemen to Ukraine and a few places in between. In this podcast, I'll be talking to the best informed people out there about geopolitics, about the big things shaking our world now and about the things that will be in the future. We're going behind the lines. I can't tell you how pleased I was with the launch of the podcast last week. Out of nowhere, we've reached number four in the Apple Politics podcast charts, ahead of loads of huge podcasts produced by major media organizations. So that's an amazing achievement, which is solely thanks to you, the listeners. So if you're enjoying this show and have a spare moment, please consider sharing it with someone you think might find it interesting or give us a positive review. These things help enormously with the complex algorithms that help podcasts get traction. I'm delighted to be joined today by Dr. Matthew Ford, who's an Associate Professor of War Studies at the Swedish Defence University. He's currently writing a new book, War in the Age of the Smartphone, which is going to be published next year by Hearst. Matthew is also co-author with Andrew Hoskins of Glasgow University, of the fantastic book Radical War, about how the digital age has has revolutionized modern warfare. He used to be a strategic analyst at the Defense Science and Technology Laboratory and has recently been undertaking open source intelligence work for the UK government on the Ukraine war. Matthew, welcome. Thanks, Arthur. It's a real pleasure to be here. Um, There's so much we could talk about, uh, given that you are an expert in war in the information age, and we are sadly living through an era of modern warfare. But I wanted to start with this concept of radical war. Uh, really, to, to begin by asking you, what, what did you mean by that term radical war? And, and how does it uh, manifest itself? It's one of those questions, it's really trying to understand how connectivity has reshaped how we come to know, understand, and represent war. And uh, in that respect, it's not just uh, what we're seeing in Ukraine, which is really fascinating, is not just that it's shaping how we come to understand war, but it's also coming to shape directly how war is fought. Um, and the most obvious way we can see that is, you know, everyone is basically trying to make sense of war through connected devices, smart devices, typically smartphones. Uh, you're going on the way to work and um, the war is represented in your Twitter feed. You know, I can see Arthur, both you and I are spend too much time on Twitter or X or whatever it's called. Um, yeah. And, yeah. 
you know, uh, you can see how people are online and engaging with it or not, as the case may be, because people's attention has clearly switched away over the last year or so. Uh, and the challenge for different people working in information operations and influence, trying to influence our understanding of the war is how to drag our attention back. Uh, and of course, they're, one of the principal means for doing that is connecting to people through their smartphone. But it's, the smartphone is ubiquitous. It's not just uh, in the palm of your hand as you're going to work, but it's it's a mundane device. Uh, the war in Ukraine is the most connected war in history ever. In many ways, there are this war looks very much like other wars past, uh, and uh, there have been a number of historical analogies drawn between um, different uh, eras and uh Points in history and the current war in Ukraine, you know, people have made references to Iran-Iraq war, to the first war, to the second world war. Uh, we're now going through a process of thinking about it in terms of attrition, but previously we were talking about it in terms of maneuver. There were other references in the opening sequences of the war that looked a bit like 1968, the Soviet invasion of uh, che Czechoslovakia. Um, there's lots of sort of historical references, but the thing that is absolutely new is the level of connectivity in Ukraine itself and how people through handheld devices can uh, can publish, uh, produce, and consume media all from one device. And that's for the same for people on the front lines who are able to record stuff and then publish it online and then consume evident, you know, the, the contents of what they've published, uh, on social media or whatever, uh, as it is for people who are amplifying the war whilst they're sitting in the, on the train going to work or something. So in that respect, it's, um, what I've been calling and what a number of people, including, um, my good friend Andrew have been calling participative warfare. We're participating in warfare in a way that is not quite the same way that you might have expected under conditions of total war during the 20th century. And that's principally a function of digital and di the digital, um, the connectivity that exists that's shaping how we uh, can communicate and understand uh, what's going on. There are a meaning really meaningful battlefield outcomes that, that come out as, as a result of that. And maybe we'll get into that as we go. Yeah. I mean, I think that, I suppose from the outset, one of the, the biggest changes uh, which is one of the most basic elements of the kind of information age is that there is an endless proliferation of channels for individuals to, to consume the war. You know, you're no longer relying on Brian Hanrahan telling you that he's counted the jets out and counted them back in as he did famously in the Falklands war. Um, but it seems to me that it's more than that because it's that, uh, you know, the whole point about social media is that every individual has the ability, whether they've got a big following or, or a tiny following, to sort of shape the, the, the way that they, they then transmit the information themselves. Um, and, and is that the main, the main change, that there isn't the ability for a small number of large institutions, whether it's governments or sort of state-aligned media entities, to decide how we understand the war? Yeah, I think you've you've hit the nail on the head. I mean, uh, a lot of effort has been put in by governments uh, and uh, to try and shape how we understand and think about war. You know, uh, I'm trying to think of um, a good example. Um, the D-Day invasion in 1944, a lot of that stuff, you know, it took 24 hours for the – it was pretty quick, you know, but it was a very – carefully orchestrated media campaign to go yeah. from newsreel a newsreel to uh turning up on the in the cinema where you could watch what was going on uh and that you know could be fairly carefully orchestrated you could define who would be on the boats who would be on the landing craft and uh you could as a military sensor define what images might come back from that uh, which would shape how war was represented. That might then go through international newspapers and various other places. And of course, they would have editorial processes to fact check, corroborate, offer an opinion, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And you can see how in the broadcast era of the 20th century, 
a lot of effort was has sort of shaped uh, uh, ultimately i guess the 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 phrase that my my colleague andrew has done a lot of work on the, the the notion of the cnn effect and how um you know embedded journalists again take pick up your hanrahan point you know we need to retain some control over the media in order to be able to have some say as to how a war might be legitimated or um, understood back at home, or even um, amongst a population that you're operating in. But clearly, over the last 20 years, and especially over the last five, that has fundamentally changed because you do not need a camera crew or a news reporter to be able to record and transmit or broadcast uh, what's going on. Literally, I mean, it started with um, uh, Web 2.0 and YouTube. Uh, and when, you know, 2007 or so, you get the smartphone coming along where you combine uh, a camera recording device and, of course, Facebook and all the others, Twitter, social media, start to come together. You've really com- started to revolutionize who can be involved in re- news reporting. That hasn't That hasn't resulted in... Um, the death of mainstream media or broadcast media, far from it. It's a mixed media ecology, but uh, it does put citizens and people with the technology to broadcast in a different place than they were before 2000, before um, the internet. Um, and that is that is a real difference. Um, what's very interesting about what we've seen, especially over the last few years, is how... The technical devices that we're carrying with us actually end up, they're, they're sensors effectively. You know, your phone is, uh, allows you to be geo, geolocated. It's, uh, you can turn on the mic and the camera. Um, you can do that remotely, of course, which is why the intelligence agencies work very hard to sec- secure those devices. Um, and why it's very important for governments to use devices that have been appropriately um, screened by the intelligence agencies. I mean, if you do WhatsApp, if you do, do government by WhatsApp, as um, increasingly government is doing, and I'm thinking, of course, of Boris. Um, you know, who, where, do, what record is that? How is that used by the government? How might that hold people to account? Can you even access it once it's you know um, been stored? And um, if you forget your PIN number, can you get access to it? So these devices are really reworking the relationship between um, both uh, mainstream media and broadcast media. But they're also having multiple impacts, um, not least, of course, uh, in terms of how records are kept. But as I was alluding to when I was talking about um, these devices as sensors, you know, they they are having battlefield effects um, because uh, you're creating a data footprint every time you turn the thing on. And there are a number of examples, lots and lots of examples, um, or over the last uh, eight, how long is it now? Eighteen months. You know, the the big, the most famous one is in January, where Ukrainians launched a artillery strike on what looked like initially as a Russian ammunition dump in January, but actually was also the co-location of uh, an infantry battalion or whatever, and four hundred people died. And the Russian Ministry of Defense blamed soldier for switching on their smartphone or their telephone and giving, uh, creating an uh, electronic signal. Now, on the one hand, that's just standard giving away your electronic signals, uh, which um, armed forces are working very hard to control. But at the same time, if you're taking a picture of something or you're broadcasting some data, if you take a picture, it can be geolocated. And there's examples of private companies who are being employed by Ukrainians to geolocate um, images that the Russians have taken but using smartphones. And that then helps shape the targeting exercise that the Ukrainians are going through. Um, and there are other examples. Um, uh, the, um, Ivorog, the, the app that allowed, E-Enemy in English, uh, is an app that was um, put together um, and released early on in the war, which allowed civilians to take a picture of a Russian advancing column, geolocate, geotag, and upload that image to a Ukrainian intelligence fusion cell. And they would combine that information with other sources of military intelligence. And that would be a targeting package that then could be used to um, remote fire artillery onto an advancing column. Um, That's uh, an enormous 
that, that I mean, that's effectively means that your your smartphone isn't just being used to count aircraft going up and down from an aircraft carrier, but it's also you're part of an extended kill chain, um, and yeah. that is astonishing. Uh, that uh, that's astonishing because we sort of in Radical War we talked about the smartphone as a weapon, and um, I remember giving the book to a few people before it was published, um, and one of my colleagues. Uh, was like really a smartphone as a weapon, but actually, I think you know if you think about extended distributed decision making and and how a kill chain is sort of extended out into civil society, it absolutely looks like it to me. Um, which sounds, which is where you know the war is so. On the one hand, we've been talking about technology driving some of this. We talk, there's a lot of focus on drones and um, uh, cyber attacks and and whatnot. And then on the other other side. Uh, the recognition that um, tanks are still important and artillery is very important. You know, I'm, I'm not trying to overplay or overstate um, the role of a smartphone, but at the same time, it does seem to me that this is presaging something fundamentally different to what we've seen before. And that, that would be my opinion. I'm sure others after listening to this podcast will pick me up on Twitter and disagree. Well, we, we'll look forward to that um, debate unfolding. Is, is part of this driven by the peculiar circumstances that Ukraine finds itself in. And what I'm talking about here is thinking of the analogy of ISIS, the only similarity being that ISIS, of course, had to create a certain amount of its own tech. It obviously wasn't, you know, receiving conventional military supplies or certainly not in any big, big way. And so ISIS fighters were using smartphones for geolocation, for secure communications and so on. Now, in in one similar way, uh, Ukraine, yes, it's getting a lot of support from NATO, but it's not fully integrated into the NATO comm systems. It hasn't been provided with the latest uh, encrypted communications and all the rest of it. So actually what's happening here is that, that this innovation is therefore being driven as a, as a reaction to the fact that they, they don't necessarily have all the kit that a NATO ally might have if it found itself at war with Russia. So yeah, you're you're bang on, Arthur. Um, it's a really good observation. I think you know. Um, on the one hand, this is just another example of what um, Western commentators would call uh, open innovation. You know, where uh, and we've got a successful Ukrainian military innovation um, ecology. Uh, the uh, Ministry of Digital Transformation recognises that it's not ha- been possible to get access to Western technology. They've had to um, foster a local enterprise and local businesses in order to, and they have the um, uh, tech capacity to do that. They have the data software, the software engineers, and people who can work their way around um, a, a lab uh, to put to, and the, and software engineers who can. Um, define the code necessary to drive some of this stuff and uh they've harnessed that to digitally mobilize society in a way that the west wouldn't uh, and couldn't for whatever reason political um political reasons couldn't couldn't actually do um and in that respect you could say that um Someone like Eric Schmidt, who uh, was um, formerly at Google uh, or Alphabet um, and the Defense Innovation Board in the US in Washington, the Pentagon written an article recently in Foreign Affairs, you could say that this is just the Ukrainians taking the model of Western military innovation and applying it locally uh, to Ukraine. And I think there's, you know, there's clearly something in that. Uh, At the same time, what they're doing, as I said um, earlier, is, is they are digitally mobilizing the whole of society to engage in this conflict. Uh, and that isn't the same as total war in, this, in these circumstances because, you know, organizations like the IT Army of Ukraine, which um, you may recall got stood up in the first few days after the invasion, are made up of um, – a number of different people, something like um, three hundred thousand, I think, uh, the Telegram channel, Telegram channel subscribers. How many people are active in that community? I don't, I wouldn't want to um, uh, suggest. But you know, you've got people from Ukraine, but you've also got people from outside Ukraine who are directly participating in trying in cyber operations, in information operations, in in cyber enabled information operations, to be really precise. Um, and 
the EU and NATO have no way of defining the combatant status of those people outside Ukraine who are involved in in the fighting in this in this in this activity. Um, and so you've got this sort of mass participation where anyone can amplify and shape and reshape the narrative, which on the one hand sounds very democratic, and I think there are reasons why we, we need to be careful about that. But um, the bottom line is it's different, it seems to me, from that kind of broadcast media model that we desc- that you de- so effectively described when you were talking about Hanrahan. Uh, but also it's very different in terms of how we might mo- how Ukraine is mobilizing civilians to get involved in the war. Um, uh, and, and and the device, the smartphone, is is enabling that. Yeah. And I'm glad you mentioned the sort of outsiders because I wanted to sort of turn to that. And we're all probably familiar with the phenomenon of NAFO, the North Atlantic Fellows Organization, which on one level looks like a, a bit of a kind of um, – a sort of a series of, of amusing memes and kind of, you know, teasing Russia and, and all the rest of it. But actually that, that is driving quite serious fundraising, uh, to support the war in Ukraine. Uh, and then another element of that is the degree to which a smartphone enabled networks outside Ukraine are actually driving their government's policies. So rather than the yeah. traditional model of, of governments using the media to persuade their populations to support them, and I'm sure that is still happening, you've got populations driving their governments to do things like commit to supplying tanks or supplying F-16 aircraft. So again, yeah. is, is this, yeah. it, the, these are kind of new frontiers, aren't they, in the way in which warfare is being driven by this information age? Yeah, I think, I mean, you, you know, NAFO is a great example. I mean, on the one hand, if, of course, they're doing all of the things that you just suggested, but the, the, the other simple thing that's going on, and it's not simple, I don't think, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's a very interesting phenomenon, is that, you know, NAFO are shaping the narrative directly uh, in social media spaces. Um, by censure, they are, you know, um, if you stray away from a narrative that appears acceptable, um, you can get, uh, trolled, and then we get to a situation where um, it sort of actually shapes what's an acceptable conversation to be had online. And in that respect, it's a very, very effective information strategy. And it's one that um, is not just uh, enables, dis- it frames discussion in relation to um, you. Uh, Populations outside Ukraine, what kinds of technologies governments will put, uh, promote and make available and uh, give away and uh, shapes uh, um, strategic, grand strategic narratives between governments and Ukraine. But it also, at a very literal level, sort of works to shape what is an acceptable thing to say online. And I can see that, you know, I know I've been working with a few people in the open source intelligence space and I know that they are careful about what they will talk about online. Um, and there are questions that they won't ask uh, and answer online, principally because they know that it won't, it's not an acceptable line of uh, investigation. So you've got a, you've got a very interesting sort of um, asymmetry in conversation online. Uh, and that's, uh, partly a fun- that's, a, that's a, st- a strategic effort in the information war to try and use um, some of these levers to shape what's been said. So, I mean, the obvious example is the opening, the one that really in- made me smile a lot was the uh, suggestion that the um, opening months of the invasion were like the Finnish Soviet war of 3940. And that narrative took off and you know, it seemed to me that that was obviously a constructed narrative. Someone was pushing that and said, well, we need to frame it this way. And uh, in that respect, and of course, all of the um, big commentators picked up on it. You know, it, it, I think Elliot Cohen, I'm thinking Washington Post, there's Elliot Cohen, Phillips O'Brien, a number of others picked up picked up on this idea that it was all about the, um, the Finnish Soviet war. And I, you know, I, I just... It was so obviously constructed to me um, and so short-sighted because it was leading politics and our thinking in a way that wasn't 
towards the empirical evidence that we could see. And it was asking us to suspend our belief, to use that framing as a way of making sense of what was going on, rather than to actually look at what was going on. We have to be attentive to how information is being constructed online and who's involved in constructing it. And we have to be attentive to the provenance of the sources, who's providing this information, how edited it is, where it's coming from. Is it webcam footage? Is it smartphone footage? Is it, um, is it headcam footage? Is it mainstream media footage? How, how, what music has been put over it? How long has it taken to come up from the battle space and onto, onto mainstream media, mainstream social media? What's the difference between a telegram channel and how long it takes to go from telegram via a number of different other uh, social media platforms to end up on mainstream social media like Facebook or Twitter? You know, what's being reported on VK, uh, VContact, the uh, Russian Facebook, compared to OK, com- uh, which is another Russian social media platform, compared to Telegram, compared to mainstream social media. These are all different media ecosystems. And we kind of need to, we need to pay attention to some of that if we're going to um, be sure that we aren't getting suckered. And of course, all of that takes a lot of time. Uh, and that, is not something that you see people um, using to good uh, purpose when they're online because they're instantly hitting retweet or like or p- passing a comment on something and on the, uh, the, the, the whole narrative develops and takes on a life of its own and how connected that might be to actually what's going on is besides the point because by that time we've got a, such a splintering of realities such a splintering of different perspectives and uh, perspectives um, on what's happened that you know, um, it, you know, it's 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 surprising if we can come to some shared understanding again, and that of course is where you come back to the big commentators and the mainstream media types, who are then trying to impose some order on all of this uh, chaos and all this distraction and all this attention deficit and and sort of saying this is how we should read the war. Yeah. Uh, and what's really interesting in that respect is, is you get these sort of, um, this, a, a carapace of record, you know, this sort of hardening of views. It w- worked like this, not like that. And, you know, the academic in me is someone who's going, well, let's just check and test and look for the evidence. And what's the provenance of that? And are we sure? Uh, because I think that's where there's interesting stuff to find. And also it gives me opportunity just to see how these media ecosystems are working together. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. I mean, I think another great example of of sort of the the acceptable, the publicly acceptable debate, uh, perhaps stifling understanding, is is actually just in the in the last couple of months with Ukraine's summer offensive, um, where I think in the last in the last three weeks it has become reasonably clear that that the, you know initial. Uh, results were, were definitely not not positive, and and there's a debate now about whether Ukraine has has slightly refocused and maybe making more progress. But it was it was not possible to have that discussion um, for a couple of weeks at least, and then um, you know something flipped. It, enough very well established uh, you know high profile commentators. Were, were prepared to p- sort of stick their necks out. And some of them had been, you know, people like Michael Kaufman, Rob Lee had come back from the front line. So, um, you know, it was hard to dismiss them, even if you wanted to. And then the narrative changed. Yes. But, but it was clear that that, that narrative, it, 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 you know, that that narrative was quite well embedded, that, that you would not, 
that saying that Ukraine was struggling in its counteroffensive was somehow assisting Russia, where, of course, actually um, not confronting the truth of a military strategy that may not be successful, arguably that is more likely to assist Russia. I, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, you know, we've we've had a stream of it, it was there was a Washington Post article I think recently, um, David Petraeus. We've had a series of high um, high ranking former generals and others being taken over, gone over to Kiev, and you know, um, clearly being shown the inner workings of what's been going on. They come back and report a particular line. Uh, and then you have the intelligence communities who are saying, hold on a minute, let's look at the satellite imagery. <laughs> and that doesn't quite tell us the same stuff. We kind of know what we're seeing and that's not quite the same. So you've got this kind of juncture between the professionals who are saying one thing and then um, some uh, people who are um, the commentators informed, you know, well uh, respected commentators, don't get me wrong, but well-respected commentators offering their perspectives that, you know, are at odds with what the IC might say. And in between, you've got, as an ordinary punter like me, you've got to try and work out what, what's the story here? How, who's, who, who's right, you know? And, um, I mean, it's fascinating to think, you know, that, the, the, that, um, the U- Ukraine. I think the Ukrainians are running a very sophisticated information operation. I don't think it's always success- successful. There are clearly um, uh, breakages and and bureaucratic cleavage points where different actors and different organisations have to try and work together. And sometimes you can see that. Uh, quite a lot of the time, you can't because of the other noise in the um, information space. But I, you know, it it does seem to me that they're running a. a a pretty sophisticated information operation um, where, you know, at the beginning of the war, we were all talking about a no-fly zone. And um, it seems to me that there are still echoes of that quite sophisticated strategy that are working. Uh, And whilst the intelligence community are not infallible, they do tend to have more access to more different sources and corroborating and cross-checking those sources is their job and their business. Um, And I would tend to think that they probably know what they're talking about more than most. It's interesting that, you know, someone like General Milley might have said, um, whilst, um, you know, the... um, the uh, American general, the Joint Chiefs, um, in the, in, earlier in the year would have said, well, it's going to be a long war. We're not sure that Ukraine's going to win. I paraphrase. I'm sure someone can go and dig out his exact words. But, you know, he pr- pretty quickly got piled on and uh, found himself having to backtrack on these sorts of statements. Um, and now it's off-book briefings by sources uh, as opposed to by um, um, uh, at a press briefing in front of uh, a press, uh, yeah. the, the mainstream media. Uh, and I think that says something about the way the information operations, information uh, space is working, uh, which I think we need to be attentive to. No, I was going to say, as part of that is, you know, information operations, of course, is is a key part of warfare. It doesn't matter whether you're you know, it's a democracy, a liberal democracy, a totalitarian state. They all, all, um, all, all states or parties in warfare will have information operations part of their warfare. But is is what we're witnessing here? Because uh, we, you know, the age of the smartphone is this is this totally um, decentralized, sort of distributed, you know, unverified network. Um, is this? A strategic Ukrainian information operation, or is this something that is effectively created? It's a completely kind of self-sustaining momentum. Which, yes, an element of it is clearly the Ukrainian government's own objectives, but it's actually sort of acquired a, a whole life of its own. I think it's a mixed economy. You know, I think um, some things some things can be shaped. Uh, there's clearly. Um, actors who are not part of government that are also working to shape uh, narratives. Some of those actors might be directed or at least um, prompted by government actors to work on their behalf. And that, you know, I, I, ITM of Ukraine, I think I, um, 
the suggestion was that there are a few core uh, Ukrainian colonels might be involved in shaping how the IT army of Ukraine is directed. Of course, but if it's uh, if it's you know participants are not um, you know directly under orders, then they can do what they want. So you've created this. There's this capability here. It's it's out there now. Where does it point itself? Um, it's clearly got some self-organizing features and people can choose to do what they want to do. But, um, you know, in that respect, I, th- I feel like it's a, a mixed economy rather than one where, it, you know, you've got centrally directed activities. And there are examples of this happening previously. You know, um, on the one hand, you have claims made by um, platform providers that, that say that they can shape, that they can delete narrative, um, a particular posts, tweets, um, whatever, to sort of make sure that the really bad stuff doesn't appear online. And clearly there's a lot of effort being put in at a network level to try and do that, um, at a platform level to try and do that. But at, at the same time, you've got activists who are absolutely trying to make sure that the positive news story is the one at the top of the search engine. And um, you know, that's an ongoing uh, f- uh, battle between a-, a platform level, someone using an AI to intervene, or there's a series of editors trying to um, uh, uh, at least look through a suspect posts and take them down before they get reach some kind of virality. And at the same time, you've got others who are actively trying to manipulate the agenda. And I think... Um, uh, it's very hard for the ordinary, or for someone who's just online, who sees this stuff coming back and through past their timeline, through their through their feed. It's very hard to make sense of what is what. And I suppose one of my ambitions really is to try and provide people with the tools that might help them make sense of some of this. Yeah, because it's it, it really is. Uh, I find it a challenge, um, and I've been working hard over the last 18 months to try and understand the structures of knowledge as they're coming up off the battlefield. And it's, and it is hard. You know, I know that I've tweeted stuff or I've amplified stuff that is definitely inaccurate. Um, maybe disinformation, maybe misinformation. And other times I've amplified something that might have helped, um, the wrong, the, the, the wrong side. And I didn't realize I was doing it, you know? Um, and so, uh, under those circumstances, I think this is where we come back to something that Andrew and I said in Radical War, you can see attention switching off. You know, it's overload. How do we make sense of all this? If we get it, you know, we want to, we want to, we can see we're involved and we're having this, this stuff is coming across our timeline, but actually it's too much. And, uh, we've gone from shock to not really wanting to. Going back to, you know, TikTok videos. <laughs> we want to go back to TikTok videos where things are a bit safer and everyone's a bit calmer. Yeah. And we're just watching people cook food or dance yeah. or whatever. Bring bring back the cats. Um, yeah. The, yeah. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. It, it, and of course, interestingly, in, as it happens in the si- same time frame, almost sort of, you know, literally, not, not that I'm suggesting there's a coherence here, the, the end of Twitter being a platform where there's verified sources. Um, seems like a hugely significant development here, not least because, as I understand it, whilst I, I doubt um, this was in any way deliberate, it seems to have affected the degree to which the other major uh, social media platforms are bothering to sort of enforce verification. Because I think there's this kind of, you you have this this rush for the exit in a way that if, if Twitter's not going to, waste time and money on it then why would anyone else do that uh, you know ukraine spent a lot of time um trying to make sure that the you know they that social um twitter in particular um accredited the uh, official ukrainian um individuals and people resp- in responsible positions so that you know you didn't get suckered in by a parody account or by um some you know and now that's all gone you know, it's even harder to try and think through your sources. You know, it's really easy to get suckered into reposting something you think is authentic, but actually is, is turns out to be a parody. Uh, and the next thing you know is, is you're unwittingly participating in the amplification of um, uh, a, some propaganda or misinformation that that 
it encourages people to draw erroneous conclusions about what's going on. Yeah. No, I was going to say, and, and the sort of the, the elephant, or in this case, the bear in the room is Russia. We haven't talked about Russia yet. But of course, prior to the, the full-scale invasion of Ukraine, there was a fairly widespread view that the sort of global leaders in generating, uh, you know, s- sort of sticky and resonant disinformation on all kinds of platforms and, and uh, channels was the Russians. So I suppose it's an important question to ask is how much of what sort of is defining the narrative around the Ukraine war is, is coming out of Russia? Yeah, it's a good question. I think, um, I think what we can say is, is that, um, that, that Western mainstream social media platforms are principally, uh, working to share Ukrainian views of the war. Yeah. Uh, in that respect, something like Twitter and Facebook quickly turned off access for Russians to those platforms. So you couldn't, you know, you've got, if you've got, um, if you've got Russian information, uh, yeah, and of course you do have Russian information operators. I'm not trying to deny that, but you know some of the more prominent uh, handles, they aren't always Russian. They might be Serbian, and they might from other parts of um, it, it might be other supporters of Russia. Yeah. What's also important to note here, though, is, is that uh, Russia has been fairly successful at dividing the West uh, from the global South. Yeah. Um, and in that respect, Ukraine's social media or you know, information operations have not cut through in the Middle East, in North Africa, in various other African countries, in South, South America, in India, or, and uh, other places that, you know, um, are important in the General Assembly of the United Nations, but don't necessarily have a Security Council vote. And so, you know, that, in that respect, you've got to reflect on the different media ecologies uh, in different parts of the world and how you might construct a strategy for shaping, engaging and, um, conveying your key messages in those spaces. And of course, the things that are going on in the Sahel right now in, in Niger, in Gabon and various other places, you know, I, I don't want to overemphasize Wagner and I don't want to overemphasize Russian information operations, but you know, um, the war in Ukraine resonates differently in those places in the context of French um, engagement there. And, you know, that shapes how people come to think about how they might in the future engage with Russia. And you can say, well, the BRICS are expanding to, what, 11 countries? I think it was 11 countries. You know, and that's part of that exercise in trying to reshape the international order. And um, I'm, I would dr- hesitate. I'm not trying to make the claim that social media is driving that along. Far from it, but it, it it is a. You can see outliers of how those narratives might develop and might be manipulated online, which reinforce some prejudices that people might already have. Yeah, definitely, and 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 certainly. I mean, if the the context, the West African context, is fascinating because you know you see these images of crowds of people waving Russian flags. Now, someone has got them the flags to wave, you know, so there's, there's clearly, there's a, yes. there's a physical network at work there. But equally, yes. if, if yeah. you, if you have had no influence or information operation targeted at you to make you think one way or another about Russia, it seems to me you're unlikely to sort of suddenly pick up the flag. So, so that there's definitely something going on there. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And, you know, let's, let's not rule out the possibility that someone's turning up and handing out the flags and offering, you know, some, <laughs> some hard currency yeah. and saying, you know, would you mind <laughs> protesting? And then we'll, you know, they're, all they're doing is sort of, um, recording that. Uh, but it has an impact. If not else, nothing else, you know, whether it's having an impact in, in West Africa is certainly having an impact in the discussions that are being had in, Paris or London or in Brussels, um, because you know you have to think what's the what's the political impact there. Um, so you know it's having an impact, definitely. Um, I I want to sort of go a bit sort of luddite for a moment because I think for a lot of people who who um, you know try try to understand what's happening in in the Ukraine war, that there's perhaps a slight sense that well this is all very interesting. But it's not as important as whether or not the Ukrainians have got HIMARS or possibly, you know, F-16s or, or, or Western battle tanks. Um, so is, 
is there if if we're trying to understand where the war is going is is it more important to focus on what we might call kind of traditional um you know kinetic uh warfare or or is this we have to see it all as a sort of single space so i think i mean that's a really good question i think the first thing to say is that um it's easy to sort of claim it, armed forces need to organize their military operations so that they can create the conditions in which air power land power sea power cyber information operations cyber uh, um, psychological operations all of these other different components of of military power can be orchestrated to deliver military effect on the battlefield but that's not how um, we as civilians and others just experience war we experience war through these digital devices they're mundane they're everywhere um, and that's true in Ukraine as much as it is um, in London so that's the first thing to say you know these devices are framing how we experience contemporary life our lives are on our phones we can do everything on our phone these days um the other is is that um if you look through the prism of social media and i was thinking about an article that i got cited in in rolling stone magazine which i was uh, you know to get cited in rolling stone was kind of one of the bucket list things yeah. ticked off my <laughs> off my to do off my to-do list um uh where we were talking about um the attacks on a russian airfield in crimea in august last year uh and pretty quickly six seven or eight different ways of describing how that attack unfolded was it a high mars attack was it a local drone attack was it a special forces attack um and there was so much speculation online that actually tracing what had actually happened we could not see not just on the basis of what was available uh to an audience just reading uh, their 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 social media feeds, um, and that th- those prisms started to shape what we thought might be an effective military activity. Um, you know, how many times have we gone through the process over the last several months, nine, ten months, of we'll provide this wunderwerfer and this will solve the war in Ukraine? We'll provide deep strike storm shadow we'll provide high mars we'll provide um uh i don't know whatever there's so many different weapon systems we've provided uh and each time it's sort of this will solve the problem now it's f-16s yeah um and uh in that respect it's not that the uh it's not that those technologies aren't important and those systems aren't relevant and necessary for helping ukraine engage in the the real war as it were not just the information war but it's also true that the um the the way these things are represented are sort of fashioning how engaged western societies are in providing these things so for example the leopards let the leopards free that was the 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 big uh, shout yeah. about um, um, providing leopards to Ukraine at the beginning of the year, and everyone, you know, the the, the online campaign was, you know, uh, the Germans are the sticking point. It's always the Germans that don't, don't do this. You know, mm. um, they need they don't they need to get behind the war. Why don't they get behind the war? They're carrying war guilt and all this, you know. And you could see the whole of the discussion about German provision of uh, weaponry through an Anglophone prism where, you know, the Brits won the Second World War, now the Germans can't step up to the plate. You know, it's all this kind of stuff. Yeah. It turns out, of course, that the Germans are doing a huge amount to try and provide leopards to the to Ukraine. And it's other countries, Spain principally, I was thinking Spain, the Netherlands, other places uh, um, uh, that couldn't step up because they didn't ha- they, the, the tanks didn't actually work. Yeah. And so you've got this sort of layering of, how the war might be represented. And it seems to me that that's a sort of defense diplomacy to drive a particular domestic politics in the West. You know, the Brits are trying to make a point with the Poles about why the Germans aren't very uh, um, focused on protecting Polish Eastern uh, Eastern frontier. So I know what we'll do is we'll make an information campaign to say the Germans need to release more tanks. And yet the Germans are the ones doing it. When the real problem, the policy problem that the NATO needs to get its grips on is we don't have enough tanks. We need to make sure that the tanks we do have work and that are properly maintained. And we need to provide those as quickly as possible to Ukraine because Ukraine will not be able to defend itself if we keep providing them with substandard gear and we don't engineer, we don't step up to the plate when it comes to manufacturing weapons 
because they won't be able to keep fighting. You know, those Soviet-era artillery tubes, those Soviet-era tanks, they're wearing out. They don't have enough munitions. They're eventually going to be working on a Western um, uh, line of organization and and, uh, military equipment, and we need to step up to the plate quicker than we than we are and that points to actually the real problem of some of this i think which is that we're distracted we're not paying attention we're not focusing on what's important uh and we're as a result jeopardizing our capacity to support ukraine just at the point when they absolutely need it yeah it's fascinating because i think you know what you're describing there is is the way that uh people who are very engaged, uh, you know, they may, they may not be people with sort of military specialisms or academic specialisms, but they feel very engaged, they're very committed to Ukraine's success, uh, may themselves be being played by their own governments or by other Western governments. Um, and, and they've sort of unwittingly become tools of a, of a rather more narrow kind of intra-NATO political uh, sort of agenda, basically. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. You know, we're seeing too much NATO infighting when the real problem is not, you know, we need to get over ourselves. It says to me that actually Western publics aren't actually properly mobilized and politicians haven't done enough to properly mobilize Western publics for what is happening. And what is happening is the world order has changed and no one is facing up to it. We are not going back to February 21, 2022. We are now in a different world and we need to get on with it. And that includes thinking carefully about what it would mean if Russia won in Ukraine. Yeah. Well, w- that uh, thought um, it would be it would be nice to then let's address that now. But I feel that um, it's uh, that's a discussion for another episode. So, uh, Matthew, this has been such a fascinating conversation, so, so much food for thought, and I hope you'll be able to join me another time where perhaps we can try to interrogate some of those difficult sort of future questions that we might have to grapple with. Arthur, thank you so much for inviting me on. I've enjoyed uh, the other podcasts you've done and I was very flattered that you should uh, invite me on. So I'm very grateful to you. Brilliant. Well, uh, listeners, thank you for listening to this episode of Behind the Lines. And if you found it interesting, please spread the word, give us a positive review and join me next week when I'll be doing something completely different, I'll be talking about Zimbabwe's recent elections and what they tell us about Africa's politics. Thanks and see you next time. Behind the Lines with Arthur Snell has been a Viner Street production. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.